Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this 17th edition of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill and as the title might suggest, this podcast revolves around the journals written by my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, way back in the 1840s. Primarily about his time as an engineer, firstly working on one of the very first steam railways in Italy and later on crossing the Atlantic and ending up in Mexico, where he works in the mint or coin-making industry. Not the the mint-making industry. (laughs) He didn't make after eight mints or sweets. (laughs) No, the the mint as in moolah, wonga, cash, hard currency, coin, (laughs) however you want to describe it. Money, 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 as ABBA would have said, and indeed do say through their avatars these days. I thought I'd just reiterate that these journals have never been made public before. They haven't been published anywhere or in any other way revealed more generally to the wider public. So they've basically been passed down my family on my mother's side all these years. Rather haphazardly, really, but anyway, they have been passed down on my mother's side in the form of handwritten journals by William at the time. So this is really the first time that anyone is getting a chance outside of my family to discover more about them. And indeed myself, to some degree although uh, I have previously read them. I primarily read them actually when I was transcribing them from the quite hard-to-read handwritten copper plate that William wrote in the original journals to a more modern-day print. I don't really want this preamble to go on too long for this episode. There's rather a lot going on. I'll just explain the situation where we are now in this 17th episode, at the beginning of this 17th episode. William is in Milan. He's traversed all the way down through France over the Alps to get to this bit of northern Italy. He's in Milan, and he has about a three-week period before the steam engines that are being exported from the UK arrive in Italy. So he's got a little bit of time to do some sightseeing around Milan itself, which is the point we find him here. In the last episode, we discussed the gates of Milan, the porta or entrances that uh, are all part of the walls around Milan. In this episode, he's primarily concerned with visiting the piazzas, squares, and palazzos, palaces. (laughs) And as he goes around each one, he sort of says a little bit about its history and interiors. Just to say that I think the idea of a palace in the way we might think of it these days is perhaps a little misleading. A lot of these palaces are really just big houses in Milan, not standalone detached properties, but houses that make up part of the streets of that part of the city. I mean, they all date back to a certain era, but they're not necessarily a grand palace standing on their own. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. A lot of them are still there today, so they've lasted this time, but of course they're no longer palaces linked to their illustrious aristocratic past. They're now buildings like government offices or headquarters or headquarters of banks and organisations like that. So that's really it. William begins by going into the centre of Milan. Most of these wanderings that he's going to be involved in this time are within, I would say, first square two miles of the centre of Milan, around the cathedral and the Scala Theatre. So he's not going particularly far. And he begins his journey at the public gardens. Just an overall picture to paint at this point is we should say that Milan at this time was ruled by the Austrian government and this bit of Italy, Lombardy or Lombardy-Venetia, in which Milan is centred, is under Austrian rule and so there's quite a high presence of that governing country in Milan at this time. So there's quite a lot of Austrian officers, 
Austrian aristocracy, around Austrian governmental bodies and organisations. Not long after this, after William's time in Milan, in these areas of northern Italy where they're under the rule of other countries, primarily because of the agreements that were made at the Congress of Vienna after Napoleon is defeated, resentment begins to grow more and more amongst the local population and that in turn leads to public disquiet, revolution and eventually Italian unification. So William is in Milan really at a time when the reach of Austrian power into this area of northern Italy is really quite strong, which he begins to describe. So um, I think that's really all I've got to say at this point. Just to say this podcast is available on pretty well every platform. So if you Google a grand tour with my great great granddad, you'll find it on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, pretty well any podcast platform. If you Google it in that platform or you just Google it generally, it should come up. And also, if you want to make contact or comment on it, you can also do that by visiting the Twitter account, which is Scots of the Historic. And that's at 3G Grand Tour. That's the number 3G Grand Tour. There's also a Facebook page that's at Grand Tour with my great great granddad. And there's a Mastodon account as well, which is Scotted. And that's at, at Scotted at Universodon.com. GG Grand Tour is the username on that one. Right, I hope you enjoy this episode. There's some certainly some interesting characters I would suggest that William discusses in this one. We will now return to the Porte Orientale and proceed up the corso or street of that name, which is very broad and leads in a straight line up to the cathedral. On the right is the public garden, one of many benefits conferred on Milan by her late viceroy, Prince Eugène Bahane, who so judiciously carried into effect many of the suggestions of Napoleon for beautifying the town. The garden is enclosed from the street by granite pillars and ornamented with iron railings, with a frieze on which are placed antique vases. It is tastefully and judiciously laid out, affords abundant shade, and is well watered, and the buildings for public amusement are spacious and convenient. These consist of an immense riding school and an amphitheatre for the performance of feats of horsemanship. This building is only covered in the audience part of it, but abundant shade is afforded by lofty trees that grow around it. Every Sunday afternoon, from Easter till November, an excellent military band performs, and at those times the gardens are crowded with fashionably dressed people. On the left of the Corso de Porta Orientale, and opposite the gardens, are the Palazzos, Cusani and Liti. The latter has a fine open arcade adorned with alto reliefs, and the cornice is surmounted with fine statues of Apollo, Mars, Diana, Mercury, Minerva, Actium, and Vulcan. At a short distance further, on the same side, is the great library, on the front of which is some good sculpture. A little further in advance is the Colonna del Leone, or the Column of the Lion. This is a lofty, rustic column with a lion on the top, and from this place to the cathedral are some of the best shops and cafes, and the Hotel de la Ville, the Anchor and the Lamb, hotels considered amongst the first in the city. Arrived at the cathedral, we turn down to the Contrada St. Raphael, and at a little distance, in the Plaza Santa Fidele, an immense and richly decorated building strikes the attention, though at the same time bearing about it the evident marks of decay and neglect. And this building is what was once the Palace of the Visconti, that for so many years ruled the Duchy of Milan with an iron hand. But oh, how the great and the mighty have fallen! And to what has their ancient greatness come to? The last Visconti, in a popular tumult, was dragged from his palace, and on his very threshold fell, pierced by numberless daggers, and then to make the indignity more complete, they tied his senseless body to the tail of a horse and dragged it through the streets of the city. And of the palace, the scene of their festivity, their feastings and their triumphs, to what low usage has it come to? The Dugana or Custom House. I have many times wandered through its courts now piled with heavy merchandise, and its halls and once gay saloons, the beautiful frescoes mouldering from the walls, many of its windows closed by rough brickwork, and all looking dark, gloomy and deserted. At one end of the plaza is the church Santa Fidele, a very neat edifice, 
on the front of which are some most beautifully executed statues of white marble. Opposite the church is the Hotel della Marino, and facing the Dogana is the Hotel della Cita di Venezia. A few yards further brings us to the Contrada Santa Margarita, in the upper hand of which is the principal police office and the office for passports, and also the place where the fire engines are kept. Here also is the Teatro Royale alla Scala, which is the largest and finest theatre in Europe, and only surpassed in size by one in the whole world, and that is the Teatro Tacon, recently erected by the general of that name at the Havana in the island of Cuba. I'll just quickly mention that the Teatro Tacon, which William's referencing here, was opened in 1838, and um, it was a bit bigger than uh, La Scala, originally it had 2,750 seats, and it is still there in Havana, but it sort of was transformed in 1914. They kept the main auditorium because the acoustics were so good, but they built a, a much grander theatre around it, which is called the Gran Teatro de la Habana. And that now, as well as being a sort of arts and performance centre, is principally the home of the Cuban Ballet Company. So it's now used very much as a dance venue. So they built, basically they built this much grander looking theatre building with many more elaborate sculptures. I think it's called a Baroque Revival architecture. So it's got many more sort of sculptures and ornamentation on the front of it than the original Teatro Tacon had in um, 1838. But La Scala, in the superiority of its decorations, the freshness and richness of its costumes, and its wonderful and unrivalled scenery with their ever-perfect propriety, the orchestra also with a band of more than 200 performers, the singing and dancing, place this theatre at a proud prominence over all others. OK, so I'm going to stop at this point. I don't think I'm going to talk about everything that great-great-granddad Bill has mentioned here, because there's quite a lot. And uh, the other thing is that, as I mentioned before, Milan has changed quite a lot since William's time. So it actually makes it quite difficult to compare modern-day Milan with what he's talking about and find the things he's talking about. There's been also lots of name changes. There's actually been physical changes. And also the element that William is writing these journals about four years after he was actually in Milan. So there's an element of his memory maybe being slightly at error or... You know, he's perhaps looking these things up again and reminding himself of them. And so there are some inaccuracies there. So sometimes it does make the research a bit difficult or you just have to interpret what he's saying because in reality it's a bit different. And uh, that's the case here to some degree. So first of all, very quickly, thought I'd just mention Prince Eugène de Bahanier. He was Napoleon's stepson from his uh, second marriage to Josephine. He actually later adopted him as well. But he seems to have been actually quite an able member of his family. He did serve in his military as a relatively successful soldier and lieutenant, and then he was given the job of sort of looking after Milan, as William said, instigating a lot of Napoleon's plans for the city. And um, he seems to have set about it quite well. It seems like he was quite a good person at organising things. Because the time William's there in 1840 is not that long after a lot of these changes that Napoleon imposed on Milan happen. Obviously, Napoleon left a tremendous mark on Milan in terms of its architecture, I suppose, in the same way he did in Paris. The first thing I'm going to talk about very briefly, I think he mentions the palazzos or palaces, Cassani and Liti. Those buildings are still there. Now, William talks about these public gardens and how people go there to listen to the music on a, I think he says, on a Sunday. And those gardenia publici, I think is the way you'd say it in Italian, they're now named after a famous Italian journalist who used to go there regularly in the morning on his way to work. And his name was Indro Montanelli, who I won't go into any further here, but he did lead an incredible life right through the 30s and the Second World War, right up until the 1990s. He's got one of the longest entries in Wikipedia that I've ever seen for, for one person, so I suggest you look him up. Too much of an eventful life uh, to go into uh, here. Now, this is where William and I 
kind of get confused because he mentions this huge amphitheatre and place where horsemanship is going on. And I think he may well be getting this a little bit confused with a pretty famous amphitheatre, but it's not actually in this park. It's nearby, close to the um, Porta Sempione, which is that very famous arch that we discussed in the previous episode. And it's known as the Civic Arena, and it was actually built in 1807. And as William sort of mentions it, when you see the old pictures of it, it's uh, quite an open amphitheatre, but there are pictures of it where there are a lot of these trees planted around the perimeter of it over the edge of the external wall, so they would have offered a lot of shade, which he mentions. It's actually quite a famous building now. It's a, one of the well-known, as they say, neoclassical architectural buildings of Milan. When you see pictures of it now, there's a running track around the side of it, and indeed in the middle they play football. It's the home of a local football team in Milan. They also play rugby there as well, and also, as I say, there's this running track going around the exterior of it, and also it's used quite a lot, or has been in the past, used as a sort of entertainment venue as well. They had um, Wild West shows there. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show came there in the early 20th century, I think, or late 19th century. And quite a few famous bands have played there over the years. People like The Police, The Cure, Public Image, Radiohead. So quite a few bands have played it as a venue as well. I think it's suggested that it's not that comfortable because you can imagine the uh, tiers of seating are quite stony and it does look i imagine on a hot day if you were stuck in it now because the trees have all gone so if you were stuck in it on a hot day watching a sporting event there and as we know milan and italy that part of northern italy can get very hot so i think you'd need some sort of sunshade to be honest i imagine in the cool evening air of a milan night going there to watch someone like uh, as i say uh the cure or radiohead one of those bands would be quite a good venue to watch them from but uh, I'm pretty certain this must be what William's referring to when he describes it as a huge amphitheatre. The public gardens that he mentions, apparently these days they still have little pony rides <laughs> there, but um, who knows? It could be that there was a riding school in this park as well, but I just, it doesn't quite ring, it just doesn't quite make sense, and I'm pretty certain that this amphitheatre... And he describes it as immense and everything like that. So I'm pretty certain it's that one. And I think he's just getting his geography a little bit confused looking back. <laughs> so there you are. He's at the Civic Arena or Arena Civica, as it's known. Or I think it's officially known as the Arena Gianni Brera Arena, a multi-purpose stadium in Milan, which was opened on 18th of August, 1807, which kind of makes sense. And... Uh, then, as I say, apparently uh, Patty Smith has played there, Robert Plant, Lou Reed. The football team that plays there is um, one called Brerera Calcio, I suppose, Calcio, Milan's third football team. They play in the uh, FSD, I suppose that's the second division. So anyway, that's the one that I'm pretty certain Will's talking about there. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention was this Colone del Leone, column of the lion that william mentions in milan that is still there as well it's very ancient it goes back to sort of the 1600s and as william describes it as a rustic looking column it stands outside a, a church in that area in the venezia area it's outside of the church san bambila in the piazza of the same name William describes it as looking rustic, and it, it does look very sort of higgledy-piggledy. The column is made up of lots of sections, so it's not one smooth section. It's small, circular sections placed on top of one another, and um, they don't align perfectly in a straight column with the entesis going up to the top. Entesis is a word which means a column gets narrower at the top and fatter at the bottom. Anyway, and on the top is this line, and the line, I think it may actually be something that was cast in metal as opposed to sculpted and its origins are a bit unknown but it's thought that it was actually some sort of prize after the Milanese uh, won a victory over the nearby Venetians when they won this battle they brought this lion back to the city and stuck it on the column as an image of a lion I would say it's very much a medieval interpretation of the beast 
as opposed to an accurate portrayal of one. And it's not enormous. I don't know, I suspect it's about 25 feet, 30 foot tall. And um, the lion on the top of it, I would say, is about the size of a a large dog. (laughs) It's quite a curious looking thing. And it's managed to survive all this time in the centre of uh, Milan since, I think, uh, sort of 1540, I think the column was first put up. And the lion on top is probably even older. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about in this section, I'm I'm not going to talk about the Theatre La Scala, probably the most famous opera house in the world. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that just yet, because uh, as you can imagine, it's kind of like a whole topic on its own. So I will talk about it at some point, but not in this bit. William talks about this Palace of the Visconti. Now, this very much sums up the thing I'm saying of where you have to interpret what he says, get to the bottom of whether he's got it right, and then sort of kind of work out what he's actually going on about and he talks about this place being called the palace of the visconti and then he goes into this long thing about oh how their grandeur has uh, declined over the years and he talks about this duke being dragged through the city i will explain that in a minute but all that i think is slightly wrong because i think what actually william is looking at is what is now known as the palazzo marino which is very near the La Scala Theatre. It's all sort of part of this big open area outside of the theatre. But at the time William was looking at it, it was still being built. It was a palace that was being built over many years. And I think it wasn't actually in disrepair. I think it was still under construction when William's looking at it. And it looked a bit sorry for itself. And indeed, it was the Decano or Custom House or Tax Office at one point. The other thing is that William's saying the entrance faces the Piazza daily which at that time it did but then later when they carried on building it and were renewing that whole area around the scar they actually made the other side the main entrance which is where it is today so william's looking at it when it was the old main entrance backing onto the piazza san fedele and it's now the main entrance is the piazza della scala i don't quite know where he gets this idea that it was a palace of the viscontis building of it actually began in 1557 or some Milanese nobleman called Thomas Marino don't know much about him but looking at the history of it there's no mention of the Visconti family being resident there or the Dukes of Visconti owning it but it may well be the case that at some point they were involved with the building they had a lot of fingers in a lot of Milanese pies I thought I would explain this account that William says of the last Visconti being dragged from his palace and being killed by the mob. So um, again here, I think William's getting the story slightly wrong, but I'm pretty certain he's talking about an incident which related around the fifth Duke of Milan, who was called Galeazzo Maria Sforza. Basically the Visconti family and the Sforza family, Sforza family, I can never say that, it's S-F-O-R-Z-A. Anyway, they're all kind of part of the same Italian noble family. And the fifth Duke of Milan wasn't quite the last one, but he was nearly the last one. And he was said to have been incredibly cruel. He uh, had a reputation for torturing people, for raping people. For, um, I mean, this is just a small list of some of the uh, things that he did in his reign. Pretty well on a whim, I think, of it. He had uh, one of his friends, he had one of his testicles removed. That was his friend. A astrologer who predicted his death, he um, he had him walled up <laughs> to watch him starve to death. He had another gentleman buried alive and then had his hands cut off. <coughs> or had his hands cut off and then buried alive, I don't know. And accused him of being a forger. He'd actually just found him chatting up one of his uh, mistresses i think anyway this is a nice one he found a farmer on his land who'd um, stolen a hare or had caught a hare but this was at a time when there was a ban on hunting so he made him eat the hare whole until he suffocated to death so old galeazzo not exactly pleasant it has to be said Although, like, with all these things, they always say, oh, he's a great patron of the arts and stuff like that. But um, not a nice fellow. In fact, there's quite a nice quote here. 
because at one time, I think it was his sister, who is called Ippolita, who apparently was not like him at all. But anyway, she asked a Franciscan friar to pray for him. And uh, the friar refused to pray for him, saying, um, What do you want, Madonna, that I pray to God for the Lord your brother, who fears God as much as that world does? Obviously, being such a nice fellow, he made quite a few enemies amongst the other nobility of Milan. The well of goodwill had uh, pretty well dried up, I think, by the time. Well, he came to power when he was about 22, and he was assassinated when he was 33. Anyway, a conspiracy built up against him. There were three main conspirators, and the leader of them was a man called um, Giovanni Andrea Lampagnani. And he was the leader of these conspirators anyway it wasn't like this side of this palace that william's at it was in a church and he was you know there at some sort of service anyway these three conspirators they all had a big grudge <laughs> not surprisingly some sort of grudge against him <laughs> land disputes i think there was um in giovanni's case it was uh, some sort of land dispute one of the others raped his sister uh dear. Nice guy, nice guy. What actually happened was they've done the service and they end up gathering around him and they stab him. And then everyone joins in and stabs him. He gets killed. He dies quite quickly, actually, old Galazio. But it wasn't his body that was uh, dragged through the streets by the mob and battered and bruised. It was actually Lampugani's body that was dragged through the streets because uh, most of the assassins in the immediate aftermath of the assassination of Galazio ran away. But unfortunately, Lambugani got caught up. Well, it says he got caught up in cloth. I'm not quite sure what happened. He apparently ran to the wrong bit of the church and he was caught by some soldiers there who, who killed him. And then his body was the one that was uh, taken out onto the streets and attacked by the mob and um, was hung upside down outside his house. And they also beheaded him. But Galazio's body, he was actually buried at night secretly somewhere. They think somewhere in the Milan Cathedral. But there's never really tracked down where his body went. But he was buried at night because even then they thought he'd created so many enemies that um wouldn't be a good idea to make a big thing of his funeral. So anyway, that must be the Duke that William is referring to. The other last Dukes of Milan either died falling off horses or... um with the troubles with their intestines. So um, <laughs> so I don't think they can be the ones that William's referring to here. So old Glazio Maria Tsorza sounds like he certainly deserved what he had coming. <laughs> it all sounds very, very, I have to say, Milanese aristocracy at this time, pretty bloodthirsty lot, it seems. Uh, this Visconti family, stroke Sforza family, I think it has been said there was a sort of ruthless streak in them, but also a sort of streak of genius as well. I don't know, they sound quite Machiavellian, to use another Italian uh, nobleman's um, <laughs> theories on getting power and maintaining power. Right, on with the uh, journal. In the Contrada Belgioso, a short street leading from that of St. Margaret, stands the Palazzo Belgioso, a very stupendous building of marble and granite. It has some very fine sculptures on its front, and is fitted up in the interior with the greatest and most studied elegance. This palazzo was occupied by Napoleon on his first visit to Milan. We will now continue our route down the Corso del Giardino, and behold, here is a strange mutability of fortune. Here are two churches very near together, one of them a very large though plain edifice. This has been turned into a storeroom for the scenery and decorations of the Teatro alla Scala, and the other dedicated to St Peter, and its front adorned with many statues, and they in no contemptible style of art. This church has been converted into a coachmaker's shop and repository for the sale of carriages. In this street also are the government offices of the Treasury, the State Lottery, and the Central Office, being a government one also, for the sale of tobacco, salt, cards, and stamps, and also for the purpose of granting licences to retail them in small quantities. 
all these articles being a monopoly of the government, who itself manufactures tobacco and cigars, imports salt, and allows not the slightest transaction to take place without having it to be stamped on paper. William griping again about taxation on tobacco. As I said before, I think as a heavy smoker, um, he gets annoyed by it particularly, I suppose. The Palazzo Serbelloni in this street is a large, though rather plain building. It has on its front medallions of the most celebrated sculptors and painters of Italy. Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Pompei Marchese, Antonio Canova, Agnese, Visconti and a variety of others. Passing into the Corsa di Porta Nuova, you behold three more palazzos. These are spacious and fine buildings of white granite. At the bottom of the Corsa stands one of the gates of the old town, consisting of two arches, on the outside of which are some ancient marble figures representing the adoration of the three kings at the birth of Christ. Crossing the canal by the Porta San Andrea, on the right is a very extensive building erected during the Empire of Napoleon for a polytechnic school, but at present it is a college for priests and named Collegio Archivescavo. I think I've tried to say that about 20 times. <laughs> Collegio Archivescavo, or Archbishop's College, as William writes afterwards. <laughs> Blimey, that was hard. <laughs> Advancing along the Strada della Cavalcina, you reach the Zecca, or Mint, for the coining of money. This is a large establishment, and contains a considerable quantity of machinery driven by water, but all the machinery is much inferior to that used in England for the like purpose. Adjoining the Mint is the large sugar manufactory of Messrs Kramer, and a short distance from it is a large prison, formerly a convent. Opposite to the prison and near to the Porta Nuovo, is a large and beautiful building of white granite, and called the Hospital di Bene Sorelli, or Hospital of the Good Sisters. This establishment is devoted entirely to females, and is conducted on the kindest and most Christian principles. The Association of the Good Sisters consists of a number of highly respectable females. Some of them have possessed considerable property, but they have devoted themselves to the service of God, and to the succour of the sick and afflicted. They therefore erected the building of which I speak, and are continually seeking out those to whom they can be of service to. Their residence is a short distance from the city, nearly adjoining the road of Simplon, and they attend by rotation at the hospital in nursing the inmates. The institution of the sisters is something similar to a monastic one, with the exception that they take no vow of seclusion, being at perfect liberty, according to their rules, to go wherever they think proper. The edifice is adorned with a fine group of figures on the pediment, representing the sisters succouring a sick female, and below three panels with beautifully executed basso-reliefs, illustrative of the charity. All these are executed in the purest white marble, and are the work of Carlo Monti. This building's no longer there, because, uh, as I've mentioned previously when talking about the Porta Nuova gate, this area of Milan is now very much like a modern business area, so this building isn't there anymore. Retracing our steps and passing up the Strada de Porte Nuovo, on the left is the Church of Sant'Angelo, a large edifice, its front and pediment profusely decorated with the saints, bishops and angels. Over the principal entrance is a respectably executed piece of sculpture representing the combat betwixt St Michael, the Archangel and the Dragon. The interior is very fine, contains some good paintings, and in many richly decorated altars and chapels. This was formerly a church belonging to a convent, but Napoleon, when he took possession of Milan, turned out all the monks and friars, as so many useless drones preying upon society, and turned their snug and comfortable quarters into barracks for his soldiers, an example which has not been without its effect on the Austrian government, who, though professing to be great sticklers for the rights of the Romish church, has not thought it proper either to restore the confiscated estates or replace the monks, and consequently there are large infantry barracks immediately adjoining this church, and called Caserma da Infanteria Sant'Angelo. That church is still there. Opposite to this is the Casa della Salù, or House of Health. This is in fact a self-supporting hospital. It was instituted for persons in easy circumstances, who were sick and who could afford to pay for attendance. This place is in general full, as persons can have experienced nurses with the best medical aid and be much better attended to than they can at their own homes. The house is excellently fitted up and has a large garden attached. 
There is also a variety of prices to suit the different circumstances of the patients, some having a room and nurses entirely to themselves, and others being two and four in one room. I have heard the institution very highly spoken of, and from what I have seen it seems to be extremely well conducted. Quite a interesting little insight there, I think, into um, private health care of the early 19th century. If you Google that now, the Casa de la Salud, you get all these private clinics going up for uh, plastic surgery or um, things like acupuncture and things like that. But just goes to show, back in the 1840s, you uh, you did have the option of uh, going private, as it were. I don't know what the modern-day health system is in Italy and quite how it's set up and if there's private health care. Certainly, you've got the uh, 1840s equivalent of Booper going on there. The National Health Service in Italy was created in 1978. Healthcare is provided by a mixed public-private system. The public part is the National Health Service, Servizio Sanitario Nazionale, which is organised under the Ministry of Health and is administered on a regional basis. Italy's healthcare system is consistently ranked among the best in the world. Life expectancy is the fourth highest among OECD countries and the world's eighth highest, according to the World Healthcare Organization. At the upper end of this street stands the Hospital della Benefratelli, or Hospital of the Good Brothers. This is an institution for males only, and is a similar association to that of the sisters. This building is of very large size, and the utmost attention is paid to the cleanliness and comfort of its inmates. I have known several Englishmen who have been patients here, and they one and all give it the most excellent character, and of the watchfulness and care of the brothers towards the afflicted. Adjoining the hospital is a dispensary for supplying the lower classes with medicine and advice gratis. The building in which the brothers reside is at a short distance, and during the whole of my residence in Milan it was undergoing the process of rebuilding, and would be, when completed, a very conspicuous ornament to the city. And in the latter part of 1841, the brothers commenced building another large hospital not far from the Porta Comasino. The next object to attract our attention is the Church of San Marco, situated in the square of that name. This church is considered one of the oldest in Milan, though standing in the new part of the city, and consequently was outside the walls at one time. Indeed, the old gate is now standing opposite to the church that bears the name Porta San Marco. This edifice is a very large one, though very irregular in appearance externally. The front shows some finely executed curious brickwork, the high altar and that of the Virgin Mary is particularly splendid. The paintings are numerous and many of them well executed. This church also contains several very curious and ancient monuments and several antique brasses. And here is ample scope for the antiquarian and also much to gratify the visitor of any description. At a short distance in the Contrada San Marco is the Palazzo of the Contessa Samailov which, though plain externally, contains in its interior some splendid paintings, curiosities, rich furniture and real gems of art than I could ever have thought possible in so small a place. The dining room is painted in four compartments, representing beautiful boys, bearing of fowls, fish, meat, game and baskets of vegetables and fruits. The execution of the whole is excellent, but the vegetables and fruit particularly so. In the drawing rooms are some fine paintings by the old masters, and they are also rich in sculptures. The Three Graces is a most splendid work on a pedestal of Verde Antica. That's a kind of marble. It's not actually marble, but it's a kind of grey-greenish stone with veins in it, of course, but's then polished. And a figure of a sleeping child in white marble is one of the most exquisite works I ever beheld. The Avery is a fine apartment and contains some rare birds. The principal bedroom is fitted up in the most costly fashion, and there is a small cabinet adjoining, painted in the Chinese manner, that must have cost an enormous sum. The floors are not carpeted, but are inlaid with the most rare and precious woods. I saw also a large room without furniture, the walls and ceilings of which were painted in compartments, with the most remarkable events in the career of Napoleon, and there is also a fine bust of him in marble by Pompeo Marchese. The number of large mirrors and chandeliers is great, and there are several sideboards of rare porcelain, and everything in this wonderful house bore marks of the most lavish and princely expenditure. The Contessa Ismailov was originally the prima donna at the Theatre alla Scala, 
and whilst in that situation had the good fortune to captivate Lee Conti Izamailov, a Russian nobleman and a person of immense property. She married him and accompanied him to St. Petersburg, where in two short years he left her widow and heir to all his property. The Contessa soon left the cold climate of the aristocrat and hastened back to her native skies, where she has attained no inconsiderable notoriety by her lavish expenditure and her amours with the other sex. But she is at the same time distinguished by acts of the most munificent charity. I think it's time to talk a little bit about this Julia Samailov, who William mentions in this bit of the journal. It was very, very hard to track her down because having a Russian name, there are many, many different spellings. And um, William spells it Samailov, so S-A-I-M-A-L-O-F-F. But after many attempts, I couldn't find anything on her at all. And I thought, I'll just have one last go. And very luckily, a thing came up on the internet about a bank in Milan and it mentioned the Countess Samoylov, spelled S-O-M-O-Y-L-O-F-F and talking about how their headquarters in Milan was once owned by the extravagant Countess Samoylov and then that was my key into actually finding a little bit more about her. As I say, it's not really William's fault because even, you know, if you look her up online there's the translation from Russian into Italian sometimes a V is used at the end of the name rather than a double F and stuff like that so it was difficult and even then there's not that much about her on the internet although she was an incredible character and she was sort of living at the height of her time at this time in Milan so I don't know how William manages to get into her palace although she was apparently very keen on inviting men around to this palace all the time so uh, maybe he just got lucky or uh, the fact that he was a foreign gentleman, I don't know. Anyway, somehow he gets, maybe it was just open to the public, I don't know. But he gets the chance to walk around it and look at all these extravagant bits of art and decoration in it. It's amazing there hasn't been, and there may well in Italy have been some film about her. I don't know. It's a shame she's not better known in a way. I'm indebted to an Italian Milanese historian, Gianni Zaccavini, who I found a bit of stuff on a blog or history blog that he'd written about her. It was then translated into English, so it was a bit chonky with things like pronouns being wrong and also some slightly odd turns of phrase that where it's been translated. But it gave me a good outline of her life. And um, William gets this wrong. I mean, he's probably been told anecdotally about her or whatever at the time. So it's, again, he's only going by what he's been told. But she wasn't actually a prima donna at La Scala Opera House. She was, in fact, an actual Russian noblewoman. It's very, very complicated. She was probably the illegitimate daughter of Alexander the First, Tsar of Russia. She had, in this description written by Gianni, he describes it as having liaisons with his brother, Nicholas I, who was 20 years younger than Alexander, so only six years older than her. I'm not quite so sure about this. Uh, when Nicholas became Tsar, basically he'd had dalliances with her, which sounds a bit dodgy, but I'm not sure if it's actually true, this bit, because Nicholas I sounds like a very, very upright stickler for proper behaviour, so whether there was actually any real physical dalliance, there may have just been a kind of romantic, um, platonic engagement there, but I'm not. I'm a bit dubious about it actually being a physical one. But obviously, in his court, she was a bit of a problem, really. And given the, what it sounds like with her character, he wanted to get her away from the Russian court, really, where she could cause him problems. I mean, she was renowned for her beauty. She had very dark black hair and um, big curls. She was, you know, vivacious would be the word. You know, everybody was attracted to her. But anyway, Nicholas thought, well, I need to get her away. And there was some sort of link with the Dukes of Litty in Milan. There's some sort of family link there. So he had her sent to Milan, basically. Bearing in mind, now that I should also mention that her adopted father was um, Count Parlin. So he was basically forced into adopting her by Alexander I. <laughs> and then she married this Count Samoylov under instruction from her father, adoptive father, Count Parlin. Count Samoylov, he was rather elderly and he died quite suddenly, not long after she'd married him, only about a year, year or two after him. He left her in his will four million rubles. 
which was a huge amount of money. So she was very, very wealthy. She then goes to Milan as well, where she also inherits about 100,000 lira, again, an enormous sum from this Duke of Litty, because when he dies, for some reason, he leaves a huge amount of money as well. So she arrives in um, Milanese society, I think it's 1828 when she first gets there. She turns everybody's heads with her beauty and her vivaciousness, etc., the men are beguiled by her and the women are jealous of her and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> she then buys this palace that uh, William's talking about in Milan. I mean, again, a lot of these palaces are really just big houses in Milan, really. And uh, she has it decorated with all the latest and most beautiful things that she can purchase. She just spends money like it's going out of fashion. She's extremely extravagant. She has endless parties there. I mean, just some of the things. One thing she liked to do was bathe in milk. So every day she would have a bath of milk. And um, one of her servants saw a bit of an opportunity here. So rather than just the milk being wastefully <laughs> thrown away, he would take it to a local cafe where it was turned into cream and ice cream for people to consume. <coughs> Particularly Austrian officers who were in uh, Milan at the time, as we know. <laughs> as we know and in fact when they actually discovered where the source of the milk was coming from that actually attracted them to drink it and consume it even more <laughs> knowing that the countess samoylov's body had been soaked in this milk so so far from putting them off it became even more sought after she was very keen on animals and william mentions this avery which is interesting because this is referred to you know that she had loads and loads of animals in the palace and she would adopt strays and she would when they died you know she would have enormous funerals with them like a human funeral with a coffin and a procession and and all her courtiers would come with her and friends with their pets and there would be a huge burial ceremony in her palace gardens and stuff like this <laughs> And uh, she had numerous liaisons with nobles and aristocracy and composers and artists in Milan. In fact, uh, one composer, Bellini, Vincenzo Bellini, he, I think it suggested that he married her, but then soon died. <laughs> and there's even this slight sort of hint or suggestion that she may have poisoned her husbands with mercury. Apparently, after another husband died a famous baritone singer called perry because he had a pear <laughs> that might have been poisoned there was a, a saying that went round the land perry perry perished by the pear so uh, there's this hint that she may have not only killed bellini as well as perry but also her first husband the count samoylov who she inherited all that money from so uh, she just had this incredible life. I think the thing that William refers to as her acts of generosity or whatever he says, I mean, this may have been related to pets, but she just was incredibly rich for the time. But she did spend the money and ended up running out of the money. But even then, Nicholas I <laughs> bailed her out a bit. He was rather embarrassed by her behaviour in Milan. It became sort of notorious, so he tried to curtail her spending, but she still led this very extravagant lifestyle in Milan. Eventually, she died, I think it was about 1850, and uh, apparently when she died, she wanted to look glamorous, you know, as she died, and uh, she asked a servant to get rid of the grey in her eyelashes, and the concoction of Vaseline and charcoal that was used was a product that happened to be made by a Mr Rimmel. So there we are, one of the earliest uses of mascara. Anyway, as I say, she she is an amazing character, and I'm glad I persevered trying to uh, find out more about her. She's probably better known in Italy than uh, in other parts of the world. Perhaps there has been some sort of film about her, I don't know, but even you know, hunting high and low, there's not a huge amount about her on the internet. And given her reputation and her <laughs> and her eccentricities. She was uh, certainly an amazing character to have been in Milanese high society at the time. And it's interesting, it's sort of contemporary with William. In 1840, she still would have been around. He mentions um, a couple of things. 
the three graces it could be a very very famous version of that by canova but it might be by pompier marchese i don't know i haven't found a reference to marchese doing a version of the three graces so if it's the one by canova canova did two versions close together one is in the hermitage museum and one i don't know if you remember a few years ago it was in a gallery in scotland and i had to have a big campaign to try and keep it in the uk it was commissioned by the duke of bedford who saw canova working on the first one and then asked him to do one for him as well so canova sculpted these two things so if it's that one that william's looking at in the palace then uh, whether it's the one that went to the hermitage probably is then it is a very well-known sculpture with these greek ladies who attend i think they attend the gods it's quite an erotic sculpture they're all three sort of entwined closely with one another and he also mentions this room about um there being uh, pictures about napoleon's campaign in them that he describes it as an empty room I don't know whether sketches had been done of this thing of Napoleon, because in this historical thing that uh, Gianni Saccovini mentions, he mentions something like that, but he says it never was fully finished. So maybe it was kind of a half-finished thing that uh, William was looking at, because of the, apparently there were objections to it celebrating Napoleon by the Austrians who were in power at the time. So the project came to a halt. So maybe they'd made a start on it, and uh, the one William's looking at, was it sort of you know half-finished or just the beginnings of it being painted but countess julia samoilov very interesting character and uh, i think yeah definitely they, i would have thought that <laughs> if there hasn't been already in italy i would have thought there was definite um, potential for a film to be made about her because um she was an incredible person <laughs> So I'm going to stop at this point with the extravagant Countess Samoilov. It seems a good place to have a hiatus because uh, William's then going on to list more bits of Milan. Um, the next episode will be about the theatres, I think, in Milan because uh, William discusses those quite a bit and um, it'll give me a chance to talk a little bit about uh, La Scala or teatro alla scala as it's properly called it's been a little bit unusual this episode two long extracts and two extracts of me talking rather a lot it's just the way it sort of panned out this time so uh, i hope you weren't fed up with too much of me yapping on about stuff but um i think uh, as i looked into it both um the fifth duke of milan and um julia samoilov or samoilov isamoilov isamoilov <laughs> There were so many slight variations on the spelling of a name. As I mentioned, it made it very hard to uh, track her down, but eventually we got there. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Do tell your friends. By all means, subscribe. That's a good thing to do if you can, because that helps. And uh, leave any reviews if you like as well. That all helps as well to uh, get more interest generated be really appreciated to do that and as i've mentioned before you can contact me as well or comment on it on the twitter account or on the facebook page on the mastodon account as well if you're signed up to mastodon that's it for this episode as usual if you have been thanks for listening mm-hmm.